This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Welcome back, everybody, to the Wall Street Coach Podcast. Uh, today is very uh, going to be a very satisfying day for me, and I hope for you too. Uh, this is a topic you have heard me talk about for a long time uh, regarding uh, our attachment style and how that impacts how we live, how we work, certainly how we trade. Uh, it's something that I really kind of was surprised the rabbit hole of day trading that I've gone down. Uh, over 14 years, but really these last two years with my affiliation with Stocks to Trade, I kept waiting to see somebody talk about it and nobody was talking about it. And that's when I got really excited about the possibilities of sharing this work because I just don't see enough people talking about it. So fortunately for me, I had done my own work around my attachment style with Diane Poole-Heller. She's somebody I've spoken about before in my podcast. And Diane's... Uh, actually has an incredible assessment that I know I've told you before to go check out, but even more in this episode, at the end of this, you're going to be very keen on wanting to do that own, uh, your own assessment around secure attachment. We'll put the, that in the liner notes uh, for you to find out where your attachment style lies. Uh, for the most part, if you're listening to us, you have secure attachment. It's just, of course, a spectrum on different measurements. And our guest today, Allison Halquist, is a, a, a associate and peer and colleague of Diane. I reached out to Diane a few times, but she is just so busy with teaching it, as is Allison. But lucky for us, Allison was willing to carve a little bit of space in her schedule to come to our conversation today. Allison, I am so grateful you're here, and I'm so happy to have this conversation with you today. So thank you for being here. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Really, I'm so glad. I would love for people to know a little bit about you. And instead of reading the standard boilerplate bio, I would love for you to just tell people a little bit about yourself and maybe even how you came to find this is your focus and life's work, if you're willing to share. Absolutely. Yes. Well, first and foremost, I'm a mother of two teenagers uh, and a wife. And um, I started my journey uh, into the healing realm um, through uh, the field of uh, somatic psychology. And then I, I also teach a modality called somatic experiencing, which really delves deep into how to help people uh, resolve trauma, the kind of trauma that you can't talk someone out of, the kind of trauma that you feel inside. And so, um, and, and as part of that journey, I had Diane Poole Heller. She's actually been a friend of mine since I was in high school. Wow. I'm so lucky to have that, uh, have her as the, as the wind behind my back through this whole journey of, you know, my personal and professional life. Um, and what, what happened, Diane was one of the original teachers of the somatic experiencing work. And I was alongside with her while she began to really recognize this particular kind of uh, experience, our human experience related to relationship and how um, in somatic experiencing, we're really looking at the nervous system and physiology. And Diane started to recognize that there's this whole other hardwired component to being a human, which is that we have a hardwired attachment system. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I first started doing trauma work, I, I used to think 
gosh, at the root of everything is some element of trauma. And then when I started to look at attachment, I started to think at the root of just about everything is attachment. Mm. And, um, you know, attachment styles, um, we call them attachment styles, but I prefer to call them adaptations because um, there's nothing pathological about them. They're actually brilliant. Um, but there's also some predictability about how, um, how our early experiences and relationships, um, like no two people are the same. So I'm not saying that if this exact thing happened to you, then you're going to be like this because some people are, you know, more resilient from the get-go and respond a little differently. But in general, certain kind of experiences that we have in a relationship, especially really early on, um, tend to create certain kinds of uh, uh, responses to stress and responses to relationship. And I, I've read, I've looked at some of what you um, talk about, Kim, and there's already, I think your audience already has some idea about the relationship between our physiology and <clears throat> our choices. And um, what I got really excited about when I got on my initial call with you, Kim, and then again with Lucas, when we all sat down together, is to take this attachment lens um, that I'm always looking at through like how people do their relationships to other humans mm -hmm. and wonder how we might apply it to um, to this very close uh, person in your lives, which we are calling trades, right? The, these mm -hmm. are the real relationship going on. And yes. you know, the trade is a dynamic thing. It's not a stagnant, you know, pen that doesn't change. It's ebb and yeah. flow. And as a result of that, you're going to be having a feedback, that, uh, a call and response to the ebb and flow of your trading life that's going to cause you to have not only particular thoughts, um, but certain kinds of feelings inside your body um, that, again, probably are familiar. And if you actually, once you start to know this stuff, you can start to really see um, patterns and, you know, and visceral feelings that you maybe have had your whole life when something goes wrong or when you get exactly what you want from your yes. environment, how that feels. And so, yeah, yes. so that was yes. kind of a long-winded way of saying I, I, uh, what, I, what I think I would probably most like to say about why I'm doing this work secretly is that I wanted to be the best person that I could be in my relationships in particular to my family. And I, I've done most of this exploration. The byproduct is that I get to share it with clients and with my audiences that I teach. But um, the, real, the real gift in it for me is that it's helped me to have the best, uh, better relationships in general. Yeah. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Two things I want to just circle back to uh, is the call and response. I have not heard that term applied to trading, but boy, is that the most perfect description because it is a call and response experience. So that just there is a catchphrase that now I'm going to hold on to for other <laughs> questions. But the other thing that I want to speak to as well is what you said about this dynamic and that there is this kind of, uh, there is a pattern that you can start to pay attention to. And the day traders that are consistent and are profitable, they have become masters of patterns, patterns of the market. But what I think really today is about is 
What are your patterns, your predisposed patterns? And if you can start to really track them in tandem with what you track with the market, you're going to have such a leg up on yourself and the competition, so to speak. But let's, let's, if I can just ask you, for those who have never really heard of attachment style before, the baby beginner's version uh, of explanation of that, would you, would you be willing to just really kind of simplify it for those who are just like, hey, what, what is this and how many styles are there? Yeah, I would be happy to do that. Um, so we, I, we, you got excited about this idea of this call and response, mm-hmm. right? And that's actually what attachment is based on. Um, because when, um, when a baby is, you know, happens and is in the world, um, a baby can't cry for a while and then the parent doesn't come and then they cry for a while and the parent doesn't come and they say, oh, gosh, darn it. I'm just going to go get my own bottle. Right. And so, <laughs> right. So for, an, for an infant, right. Yeah. It's really um, a life or death experience. If you call and no one comes. Right. And so what can happen, and I will get into talking about the specific patterns, but what can happen is that's a for instance, right? Um, yeah. So that, and these, these are called implicit or body memories and it can be something that gets set up early on in, in how we call and someone does or doesn't respond. Mm. And then we can find ourselves um, in later life where, you know, for instance, we are expecting a, 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 a trade to feed us a bottle, right? And it yep. doesn't, right? And then we get this full body experience of life or death. Yeah. This is just a for instance. There's many, many different versions of this, but this is an example. So here you are sitting in your chair, and if you were to stop to think about it, you'd go, well, I'm not going to die right now. Like a little part of your watcher could say, everything's fine. I'm going to go home and see my family and feed my dog. But the internal experience can, can replicate that early, early experience of, of um, life or death. And <clears throat> that usurps a lot of our energy right it actually when we go into a threat response like that um it uses all the glucose and our our rational instinctual or not rational this is the instinctual part the rational thinking reasonable part of our brain isn't in the conversation anymore when we when we're that threatened right and so we don't make our best choices and we don't have access to like our common sense sometimes and and we, we get driven from an instinctual place of desperation yeah. And so what's really cool, I am going to talk about the specific attachment styles, but I also want to talk about one of the huge contributions that, that one of many contributions that Diane Poole Heller has made to this, um, to this whole process is that we originally understood a lot about attachment. It's, it was since the 1950s, we've been able to sort of track these patterns, mm-hmm. but there were theory. It was attachment theory, but there was mm-hmm. no attachment application. We didn't know yeah. what to do about it. Right. We knew it was a thing, but we didn't know how to help people with it. And, um, and now we actually have tools. So if you take an original experience that someone's had, say of being terrified because no one came, that's replicated mm-hmm. itself. If you take an experience like that and you hold it next to a corrective experience. So for instance, we call up, we help this person access, for instance, that terror that they're going to die. And we attend to it in a way that it didn't get it cared for originally. And we do that in a deep enough way. And we hold those two things together long enough. Then what happens is a new neural pathway is created mm-hmm. in the brain. So we're actually, actually rewiring our brains and around attachment. 
And our brains get wired around attachment too. The very early experiences of contact nutrition that we get actually wire the right hemisphere of our brain. It actually um, helps us learn how to read emotion and how to give emotion and how to read facial cues. And all of that happens in this, this dyadic relationship between mom and baby. This wow. distance between here and here is the exact right distance for all this wiring to happen. That's amazing how incredible nature is that that is the exact right distance. That's profound. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in, in this relationship is how attachment is formed, right? Um, yeah. I'll talk a little bit about that specifically, but just in terms of the attachment adaptations, yeah. um, ideally, and ideally when, and by the way, it's not just our childhood or our infancy that wire, that uh, that lends itself to how our attachment system is. Any time along the way, even without therapy, if you happen upon a secure enough person in your life or situation in your life, these patterns can soften, and our attach our attachment systems, our attachment adaptations can change from person to person. One person makes you feel really secure and good, and someone else makes you feel kind of crazy, you know. And so yeah. they're flexible states. So. Yeah. And if it's okay, Alison, I'm just going to speak to that right now, because one of my more profound moments with Diane was with a boyfriend of mine at the time who just, just you know, even in conversations or out walking down the street, he had really an excellent ability of eye contact with me. And I at times found myself not able to hold his eye contact, even in, you know, just out on the street. And one of the things that Diane taught me was that my allowing myself to just be in the eye contact a little bit longer each time so that I didn't, you know, cause it, it was too much for me almost. Um, that was healing those neural pathways. And, you know, I remember at one point, because, you know, there were some flags that he maybe wasn't going to go the distance. But she said to me in a powerful session, she said, you know, Kim, whether he goes the distance or not, he's doing really some good work here because he's helping you learn how to be in that eye contact experience. And I just was, and to this day, you know, we don't, we, we did stop dating that long after that. But I, to this day, I was so grateful that I experienced that with him, that that was one of the things he did have kind of like, uh, kind of healthy for himself because it gave me an up-leveling and a healing of an experience that I probably didn't have that much in my childhood. So just, just as a real life example and a profound moment with her that I'll never forget. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And those kinds of profound moments... Um, aren't unusual when we can really tap into uh, this deeper part of ourselves. And yeah. it's also not uh, a lot easier than you would think for us to, to come towards secure if we yeah. just have the right conditions. Yeah. So that's what's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. So please do expand on what those styles are. Uh, and if they're so deep and, you know, we will have you back on, I hope, more than once. So know that we have, you know, as long as we need to. But I, I want people to just at least have that cursory overview for this, for those who it's completely new to. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so if we look at it from the standpoint of parenting, which I said isn't the only influence, um, but if from that sort of example, ideally, when uh, 
baby is, you know, born, uh, the care provider um, is able to most of the time to meet when I when I say needs, I mean need I mean all needs, but I'm particularly talking about emotional needs, uh, needs for safety, not necessarily like you know diapers in a bottle, but you know the the, the contact nutrition. And ideally, when the baby is you know is happening, um, the parents, the care providers, are attuned, and they're uh, they have the right amount of um, you know, they, they meet the, the need relatively quickly and relatively well. And so in the relationship, the baby doesn't have to worry very much, right? Because the baby asks for something and the, the parent, you know, pretty much gives it to them. They might have to wait for a second, but it, then it comes. And if the parent doesn't get it right, oh, it wasn't the diaper change. Oh, it's that you needed to be rocked. And, and the parent continues to sort of stay with the process and stay with the baby. Ideally, the care provider isn't too worried themselves. They're mm-hmm. kind of confident that we'll figure this out. And you know, some people really come by secure naturally, mm-hmm. um, but we can also learn these skills like top down. Like when, when you know what secure people do in relationships or even in parenting, uh, then we can, we can practice doing those things you know, for our partner, for our loved ones, for our children. Um, and so when, in, you know, statistically, and again, some sub, some, you know, some um, subgroups or some um, different populations definitely have different um, sort of percentages of, of uh, secure versus insecure attachment. I mean, you can kind of already guess that if there's a population that's less resourced and doesn't have as much support, uh, it's going to be a little bit harder for secure to happen. And so, um, but in sort of general middle America, you know, they say like half, half of us are gifted with some secure from the beginning or are gifted with secure. And then the rest of us, well, I'm more, I'm in the rest of us category, right? Is that, um, is that you ideally got some secure, you know, but then then because those circumstances that were ideal didn't happen, uh, we end up having to make some adjustments. And so we, there's really, we're going to talk about four different attachment styles. The first one being secure. Uh, and the second one, um, you hear different names for these, but um, uh, sometimes you hear this one called um, anxious ambivalent. Um, in adults, they sometimes call it angry resistant. And the setup for this adaptation is that you've got some of the good stuff. So my dear friend, Stan Tatkin, who's also in this realm of amazing healers and teachers, um, he says it's like you knew Eden and then you lost it. And so you know what the good stuff is, but for whatever reason, it doesn't happen consistently. Interesting. And so, and that's not, by the way, this has nothing to do with how much you were loved by your parents. Your parents can be really love you, but not know how to meet your emotional needs because nobody met theirs. Or maybe they have, um, you know, someone, their parent that dies that takes their attention away, or maybe they, you know, have some sort of medical condition that pulls them away or something like that. So it's not even that it's, it has, it has anything to do with how much they love you. Um, But if that intermittent kind of thing happens where I call and you respond and I call and you respond and then I call and you don't respond. Right. And I call and you don't respond. Yeah. Right. Then I start to get anxious about the relationship. Right. And so there, this, this sort of anxious style tends to be 
a little over-concerned about whether relationships okay or not. And they tend to kind of lose themselves a little bit when they're in a relationship because they're constantly wondering, well, he didn't call me. What does that mean? Well, he called right away. What does that mean? Well, um, you know, he didn't say anything at the end of the day about whether he was going to call me or not. So I wonder what that means. And so we're always trying to second guess what that meant and whether things are okay, right? Um, and this can be on a continuum. Like I have um, a lot of secure, but I have a little bit of the sanctious. Right? It can also be, there's, we, we spend um, lots and lots of time when we're doing a full training, going into all the little things that you might see in someone with this, with these adaptations. But yeah. um, because our need isn't met right away, um, um, we tend to keep, as soon as we get a need met, we tend to, to start needing the next thing. Yeah. Right? And in babies, yep. that can sound, this isn't the only reason that a baby might, um, might be in distress or cry, uh, in, you know, indefinitely, but um, if you don't know when your need's going to met, be met or how long it's going to take, then you sort of, we call it a signal cry stays on and the baby can just be kind of whiny because they're always sort of wondering when it's going to come next. Yep. Um, and in adults, one of the hallmarks for us is that we tend to be a little bit complainy, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Because we, because we're just, we, our system doesn't settle, right? When we get what we, what we needed, instead of taking it in and relaxing, we tend to be right onto the next thing. Well, I know you gave, I know you did that yesterday, but what about now? You know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, um, like a, and, a, a preparation, a preparation for that, not getting the needs met. Like you, you have to prepare yourself because I'm probably not going to get it met. So I go into it, not expecting to get it met. Right. Well, and the angry resistant term, which isn't one I love, so I don't really use it very often, but what happens is, is that we, we want something from you, and yet when we when we want you, but yet when you come, we're slightly mad that you left in the first place. And so there's this sort of like um, tension between, you know, getting your need met and then being like a little resistant to letting it actually in. Yes. And um, yeah. and and these folks can these folks me right. Um, we can be really good at things. Like I'm like therapist is one. Uh, role that we can be really good in because we're super precise at tracking other people. Yeah. We're really yeah. good at that. We can really <laughs> help. Right. We really know what's going on out here. And we, and we, and we have a pretty well developed because initially we did get a lot of the good contact nutrition, right? right? We actually have a pretty a right brain. That's really pretty acutely wired to be able to read uh, body language and attuned to facial expressions and micro expressions and all that kind of thing. Or so. voice and voice changes like, Oh, this person, I, I, I can hear so much in a voice. Yes. Right. So, and again, so these aren't pathologies, but, um, and when we know these things about ourselves, like now I, I, I'm certainly not perfect, but maybe 50% of the time, at least I can say, just close your mouth and let that in. <laughs> <laughs> rather than complain <laughs> and then we can also do the healing work where we're coming in and actually supporting that more that older memory and experience of not getting our, our need met or not yeah. getting met effectively yeah all right so we have secure and we have uh anxious anxious Mm-hmm. anxious and benevolent. What else do we have? Well, and the, the next one I'll talk about is um, what we call avoidant. Mm-hmm. Um, it can also be de- sometimes referred to as dismissive. Right? Mm-hmm. And this pattern develops more um, from a place of, um, I called and no one came, I called and no one came, I called and no one came. So the best adaptation I could 
possibly make is to stop calling, right? And to stop needing and to get really good at taking care of myself, right? And so um, the, the physiology of someone who has a more avoidant adaptation is going to be to tell the attachment system to turn off repeatedly. Because if, you, if you're living in a world where your attachment system's wanting and you're not going to get that, that's going to continuously be really painful. Right? And so um, with a avoidant, more avoidant adaptation, um, they tend to just develop a stance of not needing anything. And again, I want to say this is about emotional needs and um, contact needs, not so much like you can live in a beautiful home and have you driven to all the perfect classes and have your laundry done every day and be cooked yep. great meals. Um, and that doesn't mean that your contact nutrition was there. Right. And so, um, so we can get really uh, on the avoidance side, we can get really good at not needing anything or anyone. Right. Deep down inside, there's actually a hardwired attachment system that really deep down inside still wants that contact, but it's really, um, it's really covered up by this facade of really not needing anything and not, not needing anybody. And there can actually be a certain amount of um, superiority that comes around not needing and a sense that if you need, you're weaker than me and that I'm better because I don't need anything. Yes. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. um, but it can be ultimately can be kind of lonely, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so these folks tend to be um, a lot of times not so much in the relationship realm, right? Mm -hmm. you, a lot of times the right brain doesn't develop as much around that stuff, but they go on to really wonderful left brain development. And they can be really smart and really good at numbers and really good at, um, at patterns and things like that. So, you know, I could see where... Uh, you you know traders might find themselves in either one of these camps actually yeah, or any one of sure. three camps um, for sure and um, and these these uh, this adaptation can mean that you can be really good at producing really good at um, uh, you know thinking through things and and not being you know the 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 anxious tends to be uh, ruled a little bit more by emotion mm -hmm. and the avoidant tends to be sort of less ruled by emotion and depending mm -hmm. on your circumstances. I mean, you can have, you know, biases around which of those is better, right? Yes. Ideally, we have yes. access to both. Ideally, we have access to them both, is what you just That's said. Right. Yeah, Ideally, yeah. We have access to both. Yeah. And again, the good news is, is that we can actually go back and, and, um, and, and rewire our brains, which is the thing. Yeah. So, and tell us the fourth one. So the fourth one is one that you don't hear about very often. In fact, most of the literature around... Um, attachment doesn't really talk about it. It's disorganized. Um, and part of the reason they don't talk about it is because up until, again, Diane um, came up with a strategy for understanding how we can help folks with this adaptation. Um, and disorganized can be talked about in some different ways. But the way I'm going to talk about it today is that it's actually kind of a combination of anxious and avoidant. And it's Really, the inception of disorganized comes when there's threat in the original relationship or mm -hmm. fear in the original relationship. Um, and I would say that um, lots of us have pockets of disorganized. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have it as your primary style. It could be that, you know, overall you had pretty secure parents, but 
they had, maybe your dad had a trigger and he loses his mind every Christmas and, you know, blow everything up or something like that. And so you might have a little bit of that in you that shows up under certain circumstances. Yes. Um, disorganized is, is literally when the attachment is saying connect at any cost, right? The attachment system is actually the strongest of our, in my opinion, the strongest of our physio physiological um, impulses. You know, if a baby is in, you know, a child is in the cabin in the woods and they're being abused, right? They're, they don't run out into the woods. They stay yeah. in the cabin with their abuser yeah. because, um, because we are born kangaroos, right? Yeah. We, can't, we can't live by ourselves at least until we're 20 years old, but maybe 10, I don't know. But somewhere along the right. way, we, we can manage on our own, but we can't. And so that impulse for connection is, is really, really strong. So you've got, on the one hand, you've got that impulse for connection that says, stick in with this, make it work no matter what. And then you've got a fight or flight system saying, oh man, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Get me out of here, right? Yeah. And, and it's saying either, you know, fight or flight, um, but for young states or for young parts or for young children, um, fighting and fleeing is usually not a very good option. And oh. so we usually see that children um, who are in scary situations have to go to freeze. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, so then again, that pattern replicates itself in our adult life of a child who's in a, a disorganized pattern with a, with a parent will literally start to run toward the parent and then start to run away and then start to run toward and will literally run in circles. Because they have two conflicting, you know, one saying have to stay, have to go, have to stay, have to go, right? Yeah. Um, the cool thing is, is that, like I say, um, Diane, to make it really simple, right? All we have to do really is we have to untangle those two impulses yeah. on a felt sense level, that feeling like you really want connection and then that feeling like you really need to get out of here. And you just need to have, you know, those corrective experiences I was talking about where you hold those deeply, Right? We just yes. have to give both of those impulses the opportunity to really feel coming to fruition. And then the physiology is allowed to start coming out of that pattern. Let's I'm talk a little. Yeah, I'm oversimplifying probably yeah. the most complicated thing on the planet. <laughs> I think it's important, though, for people to be able to enter into this conversation. And I know there's a lot of depth, and I will caution our listeners, there's a lot of depth that we will be continuing to go into but we wanted you to have the at least landscape that we're going to be visiting. I, I'd love you to talk a little bit about that sense. You just spoke to the sense of a sense felt uh, revisiting. Talk, talk more about that and the somatic concept of what that means for people too, if they don't know. Yeah. So we oftentimes think of memory as sort of this, laundry list of what we need to get at the grocery store or this chronological recollection of what happened. Um, but in fact, that's not, that's a, the, a, not really how memory works at all. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's, that, sort of, that sort of declarative memory is a little part of it. But memory, the function of memory is actually to record threat so that mm -hmm. we stay safe, right? And we all like to think that we're wire, wired to, to detect love but we're actually wired to detect threat and to remember things that were threatening. And wow. so, um, Interesting. yeah. So, um, so the function of memory is to record these things, um, and to help us really remember, Oh, that, you know, that, um, I'm trying to think of an example, you know, that 
dog or whatever it is, is, is a bad idea. Don't do that dog thing. And, and so our, the memory that we're talking about is what we call implicit memory, right? It's survival based. It alerts your system from the inside out saying danger, danger, right? And these implicit memories um, are running through us all the time. Um, another thing that's really interesting is I think we'd all like to think that, um, you know, that we're in control in the moment, um, and that we're at choice in the moment. Um, but the, the research shows that, um, about 80% of the time we think we know what's happening in the current moment. It's actually our history running. It's wow. those body felt sense memories, right? So like an example might be. I mean, I think I gave this example to you guys when we met last time, but I'll give it again because it's, it's yeah. a good one, right? Is that I might come in and I go, hey, Kim, how are you doing today? It's good to see you, right? And you don't know why, but your whole body goes, Ooh, right? And your physiology perhaps is remembering what it was like, say, to have, you know, someone take their hand across you, mm-hmm. right? And so your physiology went danger, 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 but you don't really remember that because it's, it's the, it, the instinctual part works so quickly, it doesn't really stop to think, huh, I wonder what that was. It just, it just alerts us. Mm. Right. And so then you say to me, Alice said, how can you, we're such a jerk when you walked in here. And I said, well, I, I wasn't right. And you go, yes, you were, you came in and you were threatening the second you walked in the door. And then, and then what ends up happening is we end up needing to fill in that gap. So we make up a whole story about it. And before you know it, you know, you're telling me that I said something rude to you or something like that. Because if that's not true, then I'm crazy. Right. So I have to fill in those gaps. And that's why we get in these fights with our spouses and we're absolutely certain that our, that this is what happened. And the other person is absolutely certain that this is what happened. And it's 80% probable that both people are completely wrong. Wow. So is this, cause this, could this also potentially happen with somebody's treat where it looks like, feels like, sounds like, mm-hmm. and you make up a story of absolutely. the trade goes wrong. You thought it was right. And now you start to, Absolutely. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm guessing that as I'm talking about this internal experience, that all of the traders that are out there are say, are thinking to themselves, oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm not really paying attention to it. But when you're excited at that moment where you're waiting to see what's going to happen and it either does this or it does this or it does this, you know, um, that you're on a roller coaster ride inside, mm-hmm. right? And, and when it's good, it's good. But when it's bad, it's really bad. Right? And that's the other thing, too, is that from a nervous system process, when we are functioning more securely, our nervous system process is more regulated, right? And our cortisol levels and all those things that you have already talked about with your, with your folks here. And, yeah. um, and, when, you know, and when we're more modulated like that, then you know, we, we're, we're not riding this huge roller coaster, this nervous system roller coaster. More about the felt sense. Tell us what that looks like for somebody to begin to, even if they have to start with just themselves, uh, how would one step into their own felt sense? Well, let's see. What I would say is this. Um, first of all, it's, it's a foreign language for a lot of people. <clears throat> Some, it's getting to be more well-known. When I first started in the somatic field over 30 years ago, I almost had to like whisper like, oh, the body and the mind have something to do with each other and then hope I didn't get, you know, like made fun of or something. (laughs) And so people are starting to really understand that a little bit more. But 
it's still not like when Lucas comes in and says, how are you, Alice? And I go, well, my palms are a little clammy. My throat's a little dry, right? But my, my feet are a little cold, but I feel kind of excited in here. Like it's not the way we communicate. And so for a lot of people, it's really a foreign language. Mm-hmm. So it begins with me just sort of saying that and sort of beginning to talk about it. Uh, but we have um, our bodies talking to us all the time. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting because it's kind of like when you like when you buy a Volkswagen, all of a sudden you see all these Volkswagens and you don't know where they were before, right? <laughs> it's kind of like that with, with feeling sensation is that all yeah. of a sudden, once somebody starts to teach you this language, all of a sudden you're going to start feeling all these things and you're going to think, wow, what, how, where were all those feelings before? But it's, it's a little like that example of Christopher Columbus and the, and the native people not being able to see the ships because they didn't have any context for it. And once we have a context for it, then we start to, it starts to become alive. And, yeah. um, and some of the ways that I help people to do this process is I might ask them something like, um, you know, how are you feeling? And they might say, I feel excited. And I say, well, how do you know you're excited? Well, because I'm happy and, um, and I feel good. Right. But what is, what, how do you know you feel good? Like what, what happens inside that tells you you feel good? Like some people might get like a little bit of a buzzy feeling. Some people might get sort of like an expansion, but what tells you that you're, that you're feeling good. And, mm-hmm. and then sometimes people sort of inch into that. Um, and when I said our, our body's talking to us all the time, like if I'm, um, if I'm hungry, right. I get, a a little bit of a stomach thing. Maybe I'll salivate a little bit. I might get a little lightheaded. Um, I might get a little grumpy, right? But all those things then translate to the thought, oh, I need to eat something. And we don't stop to necessarily realize that. And this is true for all the things that are controlled by our instinctual part of ourselves. So, you know, whether we're hungry, whether we're tired, whether we need to use the restroom, uh, whether we're wanting to procreate, like all those things, our body talks to us. And then we, and then we translate it. So I rest assured you guys definitely have things going on in there, whether you're aware of it or not. Um, It can also be a little bit more challenging for people to feel sensation. um, If you've had, um, you know, a large number of painful things happen, right. Mm -hmm. And, and, or, or more, more trauma because, you know, who wants to be in a place that's, that's unfriendly? Like who wants to be in here if it hurts, right? That's right. That's another thing that we're really helping people do is, is get in here in a way that feels good. So when I'm, when I'm working with people and I'm teaching them how to do sensation, I always recommend, and I actually insist on it when I'm working with somebody that we start with some, that we enter into the felt sense through something that feels pleasurable or good because if I, if someone says, yeah, I feel really horrible. And I say, well, tell me how you know that in your body. They're not going to want to go back in there again. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and there's actually, a, I don't know how much you want me to go into this, but there's actually a pretty no. methodical process that I go through to help somebody get into a felt sense. Cause if like, if I just say to you, you know, um, you know, I know you love your, your daughter so much, when you think about your daughter, what happens in, inside in your body, mm-hmm. but that's a pretty big leap because that's a thought. I like my daughter and now I want mm-hmm. someone who doesn't know how to go in and feel something. And so what I do is I take the thought. I like my daughter. You, you like your daughter and I turn it into a felt sense experience in the moment. Right. Mm-hmm. So I might say, so tell me about, you really like your daughter. Tell me about a time that you and your daughter were just having a really nice time together 
And, um, and, and, the, and the person might say, well, it was when I was at the park this morning. I'll say, oh, well, tell me a little bit about the day. Was it sunny? Was it warm? Was it cold? Oh, yeah, the sun was shining. The air was crisp, but I can still remember what it felt like, the sunshine on my face. And what were you and your daughter doing? Oh, well, I was swinging her. Ah, can you feel the rhythm of that swing? Right? And do you remember what it sounded like, what your, what your daughter was saying? Oh, she was giggling. She was really giggling. So when you just sort of take a minute and you just feel the sun on your face, feel the rhythm of the swing, you know, hear your daughter's laughter, what happens inside? Yeah, yeah beautiful. It's like you create a bridge to that internal landscape so that it's uh, not threatening to go inside and visit. Right. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And believe me, there's enough of the more challenging stuff in there. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God knows. Doing, yeah, right. That's God another, knows. Yeah, that's another hallmark of doing this work is that um, healing process um, should be it shouldn't be a painful one. We've already been through too much. There's a way to do this where we start with resource and we continue to support somebody in a, a in a really secure way um, so that they can feel better, but they don't have to, like sometimes we think in order to heal, we have to go back through something really horrible and that's not mm. the way we do it in these modalities. Mm. So you said this, um, like this starts, you know, at the age of like cradling uh, a, a mother, cradling, cradling a child. Um, Mm -hmm. when is there like a timeline as to like when it's most impactful and does it ever really stop? Like what is, and then like beyond that, like what is the work? Yeah. So that's a really good question. Um, there's some fascinating research right now about the really, really early attachment moments, like what happens in the first um, minutes slash, you know, hours slash days, weeks, months, um, but that really early time. Um, there's a lot of research now showing that if you got really good contact nutrition at that very inception, that it really insulates you from trauma later on. Mm. Just the way it wires your brain and your nervous system and everything, it just sets you up for an easier time. Not at and birth. We're talking as soon yeah. as birth occurs. Yeah, in fact, it really is prenatal. Because there's a, there's a call and response happening even before a baby's born. I'm one of my, my best friend just had a grand, her first grandbaby a couple days ago. And, and I'm, and I just, they just got a little video and it was just the baby who's now a day old and just, you know, figuring things out with its mouth and kind of looking around to see if there's a breast there and, you know, just, you know, all this stuff, but it really actually starts even before a baby's born and the way that, 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 I can get off on a whole bunch of tangents here, but the birth yeah. process itself, we think about it as, you know, the mom's body pushes the baby out through these contractions, but it's actually a symbiotic rela uh, relationship that happens. The baby's pushing also, and they're working together to make that happen. And wow. So, call I mean, and response. Yeah. The call and response exactly. even yeah. then. What do you feel, especially our audience being primarily traders, uh, because of that initial conversation we had about the overlap for traders who are in this experience every day of that volatility of being experiencing a lot of risk, uh, being in a place of uncertainty, and what I would advocate hopefully unattached, you know, being unattached to results, right? right. What do you think 
just from our conversation a couple of weeks ago, and as you've been thinking about it, what do you think maybe they is most important or one of the top two or three things that's most important for them to really get about themselves and the way they operate in their trading? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because we, um, you asked this question about when this process starts and I was saying it was right, you know, early on, um, but it continues out through our whole life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if we get in a relationship that's um, really secure, that can be great. If we get one that's functioning insecurely, that can be really awful. And I think the same is true about this relationship between traders and their trades is that, um, and I think that, I mean, this is just my working theory is that if, if the trader is able to um, attend to some of those patterns, those unconscious patterns that are running the show, right, that there's a better opportunity to be neutral because we're not, we're not functioning from that life or death place. Mm. I don't know that I exactly answered your question. Yeah, you did. You did. So, so let's say that, that give us what would be those first couple of steps you spoke about tracking some of those emotional experiences. What else would be appropriate for them? And, and let's just back up. If they are tracking, what is it? What should they be tracking? Well, initially seeing if they can practice doing it with something that's pleasurable mm-hmm. and starting out with something that really means a lot to you. What I will tell you is that anything pleasurable usually has a wound that comes with it, right? Mm-hmm. And so if, as you're tracking, for instance, the love you have for your daughter, um, if you spend enough time tracking that, the wound is going to show up. This is how this work works. And as you're tracking that, you're all of a sudden going to feel this pang of despair that you yelled at her this morning and you feel really bad about that. And so, and the way that we then would work with that is again, just giving it, giving ourselves a chance to attend and feel the truth of that and our humanness and to care for it. I mean, the quality of our attention is really meant to be um, um, the sort of part of the antidote, right? Which mm-hmm. is how is it to just give that feeling some care and some attention and some time you know, that you love your daughter so much that it hurts this much that you yell at her, right? Mm-hmm. And and the art is not staying in the discomfort too long, right? Mm-hmm. And this is what in the somatic experiencing realm, or Diane calls it pacing and dosing, and somatic experiencing, we call it pendulation, where there's a movement between what doesn't feel good and what hurts, and, what do, and then what does feel good and what doesn't. And so that keeps the process from being too overwhelming. Yeah, it, it it's almost like you are... Uh, I can't help but think of a pinball machine. It's like you can you can rough up that machine just so much before it hits tilt, and you have to like find that balance of being able to move that pinball around without shutting down the whole system. Right. Exactly. The other thing I would say is I think that you said you've given them the resource. You might want to give it to them again to go on to Diane's website, and you yes. can do a, a little self-assessment of your attachment there. Um, when you take it, I would recommend thinking of one particular person. Mm. Like I said, you, you different attachment adaptations are going to show up in different relationships. Or you might even think about it in relationship to a particular trade. Yeah. Wouldn't yeah. that be fascinating to take it that and maybe even take it twice, but take it once related to a trade that went well and once in relationship to a trade that didn't. Yeah. And then you might be able to sort of see which, uh, and then, and then once you learn 
if we are you know, going to continue to give them more information, they'll be getting a, a lot more about sort of what the tendency for those adaptations to do when they're yeah. under stress. And, yeah. and um, then there's this opportunity then to um, know oneself. Like I say, I tend to be a complainer because I get what I want and then I just ask again. So can I do a little top down? Can I say, okay, you know, um, I, I tend to get anxious about things. Why don't I just wait and see what happens instead of, you know, I'm thinking about, I don't remember which movie it is uh, or what it's called. Maybe it's Swingers. It's the one where he gets the girl's phone number and he calls and then he calls back yes. and he comes back and he yes. comes back That's and he's watching like, I can't stand this. You know, that'd be like an anxious move, right? Um, is, uh, and so, you know, once we kind of see these things and through the attachment lens start to know, oh, when I have a trait go bad, I go into avoidance or I go into an anxiousness and I you know, and I make a bunch more trades and hope that I can make up for it or something like that, or I'm scared to, to make a trade now at all or something like that. So to be able to start looking at not only the bottom up ways that we can heal this, but the, the, when we have that information, how we can advocate for ourselves and, and, and kind of, you know, boss ourselves around a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, Lucas, did you have a question? I, I think there might be something there like uh, to take it, with the idea of like specific trades or like even I would say like the day of a trading, like, I don't know. It, it's, I think, I think you're onto something here. There's something very interesting here because <laughs> I've, I've seen myself uh, like move back and forth depending on how the day has gone, you know, where sure. I think like, Oh, I think I'm uh, ambivalent. And then other times I'm like, I think I'm secure. Like <laughs> just in the way you're talking right now. I feel. Yeah. So, yeah well, sure. and the other thing too, the other side is, how is what's happening in your interpersonal relationships affecting your, your, your trading? Absolutely. Right? If, you're, if you're a very insecure moment with your partner where you don't know if they're going to leave you, that insecurity is going to translate onto the trading floor. I'm certain about it. Or yeah. if you're in a really secure relationship that you're feeling super good about, um, that lowers our cortisol levels and, and heightens our level of confidence. I would say one of the hallmarks of being in a secure relationship is that everything seems good. You know, yeah. and you yeah. feel good about yourself. Yeah, for sure. One of the uh, tools, another tool that I lean into deeply is uh, nonviolent communication, Marshall Rosenberg's work. And I have many times and been using this a lot, which is probably part of what made me begin to realize how much attachment style could be uh understanding it and applying it to trading is what I've noticed, especially during the pandemic, was that a lot of traders' needs for adventure weren't getting met because of the lockdown. And some traders found they're taking much bigger risks in their trading uh, because of it. And one of the conversations at one point, which was, you know, a webinar for a company called True Trader, what we noticed, this person happened to speak to the fact that she was very adventurous and hasn't had that. So the first homework assignment was, go get your need for adventure met however you can, because you're going to get that need. You're going to be seeking that need out in your trading until you get it nourished. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's part of, I think, seeing that and now often traders themselves, those who, you know, 
continue to watch me, they'll say to me, hey, I was trying to get my need for, you know, uh, to see and be seen met, Kim. One person said they were trying to get their need for community met because somebody else was taking a trade and they wanted to have that kinship for the day. So they realized, oh, that was such a mistake because I didn't look at anything else, but that this other guy was going to trade it with me through the day. So that, I think all of that happening and people tuning into that even more underlined the need of like this concept. But, but what you just said about a relationship showing up a certain way, that's going to potentially trigger the good or the bad or the ugly and then show up in our trading. It's just, it just brings it full circle. It just brings it full circle. And I'm so excited. As I'm listening to this, like the gift in all of this is that you might get better at your trades, but you'll also get, as you, as you explode this work, you'll get better in your, in your interpersonal relationships. And then yes. that, you know, that's, that's where, I mean, honestly, the trades are important, but the, the, the our loved ones in those relationships are really what's important. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and how can the trading not benefit if those relationships are heal, healing and, and nourishing to you? You're, you're, you're going to automatically be able to go into your trading more from a place of neutrality and a place of even keeledness. Right. So it's yeah. just, yeah. yeah. Well, I have so many more questions for you, but I know that we're going to have you back. I'm very curious to see what about this resonates for people. Uh, we, you know, spoke to Allison listeners a, a couple of weeks ago. I've been just holding and sitting on the edge of my seat for this conversation. We, we, I believe, just scratched the surface. So we're, we're looking to you listeners, tell us what you want to see more of how you want us to interpret this uh, and present it to you. And I think Alice and I will, and Lucas will be talking about how we do just that, because as you can see, this has so much application to how you trade and how you live and how you operate in the world. It's amazing, Lucas. So excited just to give these tools to people. And it is fascinating to think about just the way you know, how this can affect everything. Like, like you said, your personal relationships. Um, and how does that, how does that not translate to everything else you do? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Just, just even we've recently had the. Yeah. Go ahead, Allison. Sorry. I missed her. Oh gosh. I don't know. I was, I'm not sure you go ahead, Kim. I'll think of it in a second. (laughs) Just, just, we have Michelle Booker on recently who wrote a book, you are what you risk. And she talks about a risk profile, risk personality. And one of the things that was fascinating about that concept is that this sense of our interpretation of our risk profile is somewhat subjective. And, and I feel almost, Even my understanding, I I think I saw myself as a lot more riskier than in reality based on what I learned in her book that I probably was when I left finance to start my own coaching practice 14 years ago. And I thought, oh, I was so maybe irresponsible to do that. And reading that book helped me really see that based on certain variables, it actually wasn't so risky, uh, that I actually was doing something that was uh, me tending to my needs and not so irresponsible, so to speak. And I think this concept of the way I viewed myself 
shifted because of that insight. And that's what I feel attachment style and understanding it has done for me in my own journey. Understanding myself helps me set myself up for success in relationships, in experiences, and realize, oh, look at yourself from this lens. I loved what you said at the start about this isn't pathological. This is about understanding, oh, I didn't get this met over here, and this is my adaptation to navigate that uh, lack of nutrition, so to speak. Yeah, and sometimes those patterns, um, even later in life, they need to return for a moment if things aren't going well, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, but I'm I'm in awe as I do this work because there's no two people that are ever the same and the really creative and deep and phenomenal ways that people um, have survived things and gotten through things and stuff, it never ceases to be amazing to me. Yeah, it's pretty incredible how unstoppable human beings are. And the philosophy of coaching, part of what drew me into it was its perspective that none of us are broken. All of us are perfect at navigating what we had to navigate. But are there some costs that we're no longer wanting to pay to get tools to heal some of those wounds? And and I love that, you know, it sounds like you're coming from that same place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is really exciting. I can't wait to see how people receive this and what's interesting to, to everyone and to give us maybe some direction on where we can, where we can go from here. Yeah, and I've, you did some exercises with Lucas and I uh, when we first spoke. I, I think maybe we do some of those too in future conversations. So we'll see what people have to say. But I'm just so excited to get this work and your wisdom in front of our audience because I know they're going to really be enriched by it. So thank you for today. Well, I'm really honored to have you guys reach out to me and get to do this with you. It was really fun. Thank you. Very fun. Very fun. Thank you, Lucas, for, you know, just just being open. I, I want to just acknowledge you, Lucas, because, you know, from the beginning when I was bringing this up, I, you know, you could have easily been like, what are, what are you, where are you taking this, Kim? You know, what I, <laughs> oh, I, I brought up attachments on. <laughs> you are? <laughs> I had a feeling. You were kind of like, no, ah, it's just a bit of a stretch. But like in, a, in a, an appropriate pushback way, like you were questioning me like, well, and then I was like, no, but I think I see it here, but I couldn't quite articulate it. You know, I was like, it was just beginning to kind of surface up and then I kept looking to see somebody must be talking about this and and maybe I was looking for evidence or confidence or like yeah but then at some point you know the point of no return where I was like this is powerful well attachment applies to everything in life but it was interesting when you first posed this to me also you two I um I had to kind of stop and 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 let that sort of rattle around in my head for a while to see exactly what uh, what the connection was, but I think it's uh, definitely showing itself. <laughs> so excited. Thanks for being on the adventure with us, Allison, because it's, it, you know, we're, we'll discover all of us together, but to, to be able to just take that assessment, which again, we'll put the link 
in the liner notes, uh, go to Diane Poolheller's website. You're going to take this attachment style. And to those traders who want to do it from the lens of their trading day, as Lucas recommended, or a specific trade that's still in the memory bank, uh, you know, from months ago, uh, perhaps that is a great way for us to start to track it and with relationship in your life. That's important uh, because then you may see that pattern, but we'll find out we're all on the adventure together. Fascinating. And, uh, I know a little tidbit before yeah, we talk. Please, yeah, please. Yeah. We were just talking about something that happened in the past that's still rattling around back here. Yes. Um, the way that this all works is that if there's a, if there's something difficult that happens, in relationship, and in this case, that's the relationship to the trade, but even like in a interpersonal relationship, um, if that is repaired right away, like the old adage, don't go to bed mad, like yeah. within the first, you know, couple hours or so, or within that day, if it gets repaired, it doesn't get relegated to long-term memory. It's mm -hmm. the things that are injuries that don't get repaired or resolved that we record, that we put in our long-term memory again as a reminder so that we don't get hurt again. So, you know, if you've got trades that, and it's never too late to go and deal with those things that never got, never got healed. So if you've got a trade that's still rattling around in your head, that means it might need some repair still. Yeah. You know, actually that I think I learned from Peter Levine's book, Waking the Tiger, that he, I, if I recall correctly, Allison, you'll probably know this quicker than I do, but I remember him saying that you, you're repeating, there's a repetition, like a record that's skipping and the, the, the mind, the body, the physicality of it, it just wants to finish the revolution of where it needs to end. And if we don't allow it to have that, it, it's interrupted and will potentially turn into PTSD where it repeats, yep. repeats, yep. repeats. Yep. Yep. So, wow. Yeah. So, so the sooner you apologize, the less you'll <laughs> for you make friends with your trade or your partner, the yep. less, um, less stuff that will, that you'll be remembering. It's Less cost. The cost reduces very quickly. Oh. Profound. What a profound way to end. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. So great. All right. Thank you, everybody, for viewing. I, You can tell I'm pretty excited about what's to come next. <laughs> and I'm just beyond grateful to you, Allison, for coming. Uh, we will see you guys very soon on the Wall Street Coach podcast. Please, again, let us know what you think. We are reading all your comments and input especially for this one. All right. Oh, we hope for now. This has been the Wall Street Coach Podcast with K-Man Curtin. You can find out more about her and her team online at thewallstreetcoach.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.